You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hi, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update. A lot to go over. I've got a lot of catching up to do with you today. Uh, We've got developments here on the Hill, obviously, major developments in our work for election integrity, uh, major developments for our investigations or in our investigations and litigation on the January 6th matter, uh, and also new developments to talk to you about in terms of the great suppression which is the uh, government big tech collusive censorship of President Trump and virtually all of you watching. So a lot to talk about. Uh, It's good to be back. I had to take some time off for health reasons. I had, those of you, uh, you may recall, I did have surgery earlier. I guess it was back in the middle of November now. I had uh, some uh, something removed from my face, and I think they did a pretty good job. You can see the scar here. It's a little bit swollen, but there's a, a zigzag of a scar, um, which is well worth it, given uh, what happens if you leave bad things on your face like I had. Uh, but my advice to you, if there's anything weird on your face, and it certainly, it doesn't even matter how old you are, go get it checked out because it's probably something that shouldn't be there and should be looked at and removed. Uh, but I'm glad to be back. And uh, what I'm going to go through, what I'm going to do here is, you know, talk about the big things that happened uh, since I've been away, uh, focus, uh, exalt more, more, um, uh, more time on that and then go through quickly uh, some of the other significant things we've done over the last two months. Because what happened was uh, we just kind of went to town uh, in November and December uh, in terms of uh, fighting for the rule of law, government accountability. And we had some tremendous successes that are well worth discussing at length here as well. Uh, but first up is the historic fight now or historic battle as to who is going to be the Speaker of the House. Now, you recall in the elections in November, uh, the Republicans came in with a much smaller than expected majority. I think it's only five five or six votes. And conservatives in the uh, Republican caucus have uh, are unhappy with Kevin McCarthy for uh, reasons that um, I won't bore you with, but you probably have been well educated on in the last several days, given the fight. And so as a result, Mr. McCarthy has been unable to get the majority necessary to become Speaker of the House. As of now, he's had 13 votes. They may get another vote tonight. I'm not sure. But either way, uh, the votes have been uh, strong against him in the term, in terms of having 20 individuals against him. Now, uh, there's been a bit of a deal. So there are about six individuals against him. And what I'm going to do is try to explain what the dispute is with uh, the members uh, that have opposed McCarthy today. Now, a, a big group of members, the 13 or 14 who initially voted uh, against him, but have subsequently switched their votes, uh, their concern, um, and it's shared probably by the others as well, is that the Speaker's office is too powerful. And this is something I think the left and the right, um, certainly those, if there's any honest folks in the Democratic Party there on the Hill, they would probably agree with me here as well, is that the Speaker's office in recent years has become too powerful. And uh, you, you kind of get this feel from the media. It's like, well, the House did this, the House did that. No, actually, what happened is one member of the House, a Speaker of the House, uh, put forward a bill and under Pelosi and previously under um 
Congress, uh, Speaker Ryan and Speaker Boehner uh, was able to push through legislation that they only wanted. And they kind of used party discipline and and other methods to get the, the bills passed. So it wasn't this organic uh, approach to legislation that I think we all naively or many of us naively thought might be taking place on the Hill. If the speaker didn't want it to happen, it didn't happen. If the speaker wanted it to happen, it did happen. That's the way things have run. And in a 435 person body that purports to represent the full breadth of the United States of America, obviously that isn't good because it leads to uh, essentially one person running one half of the legislative branch. And that's been the core dispute between uh, McCarthy and his people and uh and 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 the 20 or so that have objected uh, to uh, his uh, potential speakership. Now, supposedly McCarthy has come to a deal with some of those folks, uh, uh, folks who are all, you know, pretty much, you know, they're good conservatives who are supporting McCarthy now, even before this, uh, some of these 20 came over. Uh, so some of these conservatives have come to a deal with McCarthy that require him to, uh, devolve power from the Speaker's office to the other members of the House. And it's hard to really object. I don't know how any sensible person could object to any of that. And so what will happen is that there'll be more opportunities for legislation to organically develop uh, from uh, members who could share our values, for instance, and uh, get onto the floor and get fully discussed. And I guess there's commitments that some some of these issues uh, or some some legislation related to, for instance, the border and such certainly will make it to the floor. And uh, on top of that, there's uh, discussions about what is called the Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee is a vehicle for uh, the speaker, typically, to control the legislation that gets to the floor. And the Rules Committee typically has been kind of like the Politburo of the speaker. Uh, just They're just avatars for the speaker. And I understand the conservatives have ensured that they'll have a more significant voice on the Rules Committee to ensure it's not just a bunch of establishment liberals and moderates in the Republican Party that are controlling the flow, direction, and policy of the House of Representatives. So I don't know if McCarthy's going to win or lose because they're even with this so-called deal that's in place, uh, there are still six members as of now who don't want him to be speaker. And they, I guess, they don't trust him, given his prior record, to implement any of this. One of the concerns I have, not only about McCarthy, but about the House generally, because I don't think it's going to be necessarily addressed, even if McCarthy isn't the speaker, is what's going to happen with investigations and accountability. And I've been advocating for a broad-based impeachment inquiry. So as part of this broad-based impeachment inquiry, it would be, it seemed to me, more efficient to kind of go through that process or use that inquiry as the umbrella to get information from the Biden administration. Uh, I think legally it's it's a more powerful way of ensuring compliance and politically it escalates the issue of accountability. And of course, uh, one other issue in terms of the internal operations of the House is that they should punish 
for abuse of office, those members of the House that were involved in the January 6th rump committee uh, that uh, abused their authority to harass American citizens for First Amendment protected freedoms, harass President Trump, release uh, private information on American citizens. I know I was targeted. Judicial Watch was targeted as well. And they shouldn't be allowed on any committees. They should be barred from committees. Similarly, members of the House Ways and Means Committee, the Democrats, who uh, for improper purposes sought and then released the confidential IRS tax returns of President Trump should be barred from the House Ways and Means Committee or any other committees. So if there's going to be abuse of power, there's got to be accountability. Now, I'm told McCarthy doesn't want to do anything like that and probably would never do anything like that. But, and I suggest if you have views on these issues, you call your members of Congress uh, to let them know what you think, A, about the speaker's race and B, about how Congress proceeds in terms of accountability over the next two years. And the n- number you can call to get to your representatives is 202 202- 225-3121. That's 202-225-3121. And uh, ask for your house member. And, you know, I hope you know who your house member is. You should look it up if you don't. Uh, some of you may have new house members. So it's essentially, it's, it's, it's really important you call. And even if you're, even if your house member doesn't agree with you, even if your congressman is someone on the other side, And this goes for Democrats and Republicans, because I know Democrats are listening and they're thinking, well, I'm going to do what Fitton says. I'm going to do everything opposite what he says. Well, that's fine. It's a great country. You can still do that. No thanks to uh, the liberal left. Uh, But the fact is uh, they do listen to the calls. Uh, and you may think you get you're treated shortly, uh, you know, curtly, uh, or uh, you're you're not given enough time to share your views. No, they they generally figure out who's calling and what they're calling about, and uh, what their views are, and they take note. And calls are an effective way of communicating uh, your views about uh, the issues of the day, including what the House is going to do. And in terms of general House investigations, I would I would think because uh, I talked about impeachment that, you know, we can't just have two years of investigations. Judicial Watch can do that. Right. Send a letter out and then in 10 months issue a subpoena and then have a subpoena fight for months and months and months. Same things about same thing about testimony. I think that, you know, a lot of the corruption we already knew took place. Right. So what is there to investigate? I'm not saying there's nothing to investigate, but to me, it ought to be the penalty phase. That should be what the House focuses on. We know the FBI did this. We know the Justice Department did this. We know the border is being a uh, there's a border crisis because of a failure to enforce the law in a way that's contrary to law. And and we're going to get some accountability, whether through impeachment or uh, criminal referrals, however, uh, unlikely the Justice Department will pursue them, but you, you, you make it clear that there's an issue or, um, or defunding. Did I say defunding? I didn't say defunding yet. Defunding the depart, the departments and the agencies. Uh, you can really have a great impact if, if you take that approach. And, uh, 
we can't wait two years for Congress to get its act together in terms of investigations, uh, because what's going on is currently destroying the republic. Between the border invasion, Biden's abuses of power to try to target and jail his political opposition, to censor his political opposition, we can't wait. And so Congress has got to get on the ball. And so those are the sorts of issues that I would want to raise with any new speaker or uh, the members of the House. And, and, you know, if you think that the corruption issues aren't being pursued adequately, you, you know, just don't complain about it. You have to call your members and let them know what your views are. And believe me, it has an impact, you know, and tell them Judicial Watch sent you. And they want to, if they want to figure out what you're calling about, talk to Tom Fitton. They know who I am. They know who Judicial Watch is. They know exactly why you're calling. Believe you me. So is Speaker McCarthy, excuse me, he's not Speaker. Uh, is McCarthy going to be the Speaker? I don't know. But I do know no matter who is the Speaker, Judicial Watch will continue to take the lead because I think we'll have to be in the lead given the likely um, haplessness of Congress on these corruption issues. And another big issue that happened since I've away, been away is the uh, release of the so-called Twitter files by Elon Musk. Now, the Biden administration and the left has been furious with Musk and have been has been have been retaliating against him and threatening him and abusing him because he has committed to more free speech on Twitter. Is it been perfect to date? No, but it's a lot better. And he's been committed and has uh, uh, actually followed through on transparency about Twitter's previous improper censorship of American citizens. Uh, not only the internal improprieties, but their collusion with the government in a way that raises all sorts of legal and constitutional concerns. Now, for instance, uh, you know, to take a step back, you may know or should recall, I would hope, that Judicial Watch sued the California Secretary of State's office for going to Twitter during just shortly before the election and getting a Judicial Watch video taken down, like one of these videos that I, it was a video I made for Judicial Watch talking about the issues related to election integrity. And they caused YouTube to take the video down. So we sued the California Secretary of State's office for violating our civil rights. The Ku Klux Klan Act is a law that allows you to sue uh, government actors and private actors who collude and conspire with them uh, for uh, violations of your civil rights. And in this case, it was it's the First Amendment. So when you look at these Twitter files that Elon Musk released, you'll see there was an unholy conspiracy between the FBI, the CIA, Justice Department, DHS, State Department, NSA. I got the CIA covered already, right? Um, and HHS, because that was the COVID censorship. And they were pushing Twitter and uh, to censor Americans on issues like uh, the issues that Judicial Watch talks about. COVID, uh, around the election time, they were clearly pressuring Twitter to take down material that was uh, deemed, uh, quote, misinformation 
even though it was a debatable point about election integrity and other issues. So you had voluminous evidence, as uh, Elon Musk later remarked, of election interference by Twitter in league with these uh, government agencies, which continues to this day. Twitter, for instance, has been exposed, had a portal. And in this port, there was a portal for government agencies to uh, communicate with Twitter in order to get accounts taken down. And these accounts were taken down by the thousands. You also had Congress pushing to get people uh, censored. Uh, these Twitter files have shown, and we're talking about left-wing members of Congress. Uh, uh, Adam Schiff, the corrupt and compromised and unethical and disreputable Adam Schiff, tried to get uh Paul Sperry taken down, the investigative reporter who exposed his uh, impeachment abuse and conspiracy, uh, which was of a seditious nature, I would submit, a coup attack on President Trump over Ukraine, working with um, uh, folks, it looks like, in the CIA and uh, a deep state actor in the NSC and a, uh, a, a, a shift guy who uh, may have colluded in a way that compromised classified information contrary to law. Schiff wanted not only Paul Sperry's material taken down, but he wanted Twitter to stop them from uh, stop people from being able to even search for this type of information. And Twitter, to its credit, said, you know, we don't do this. But of course, Sperry eventually was taken down. Uh, So there are a lot of people potentially who have claims against these government agencies and or Twitter. And what's really uh, disturbing about all of this, and I can't go into all of the Twitter files here uh, because I think there have been 10 breaks, uh, 10 drops. Um, uh, They're all available in one place. Matt Taibbi is a reporter who's been looking at this material uh, for Elon Musk. Um, and he's, he gained access to this material and he uh, compiled it all in one place. And I think we'll put the link uh, below. So you should be able to find the link below. And if you can't send us an email, we'll get you the link. Uh, but it, it is astonishing and disturbing because I know it's still going on. Like, for instance, Judicial Watch shows up in the Twitter files. I talk about a, uh, there was, a, a I think, a... Um, a tweet about uh, mail-in ballots and the problems with mail-in balloting, which are well known. And they suppressed it with a, uh, it made you, it made it difficult to share or even reply, if not banning replies. And that, and that is still going on. That, that censorship is still going on, uh, whatever the algorithm is or that had uh, created that uh, suppression is still happening at, at, at Twitter. So Musk has some more work to do. Uh, but the emails show that the uh, internal Twitter folks had utter contempt. Uh, and they said, you know, Judicial Watch was complaining and whining about us being censored. I mean, we're the nation's largest and most effective transparency organization, a major government watchdog group that is worldwide, uh, known worldwide. And they're making fun of us because we're complaining about being censored just days before an election. Shows you the contempt they had for the rule of law and, and frankly, the uh, uh, just basic business ethics. And the other concern is that we know, as described in these Twitter files, is that Twitter was, is just small potatoes, relatively speaking, to what Facebook and, Facebook and YouTube are doing. And YouTube is owned by Google. Facebook is owned by Meta. Meta owns Facebook and Instagram. So these are major, major platforms. 
And there's no, you know, they haven't done a Facebook files release. They haven't done a YouTube files release. And I know that this video is going to be suppressed and censored on Facebook and YouTube because I mentioned two word, two phrases, COVID and 2020 elections. YouTube has been like, um, if I mention anything about elections, they now vandalize our video with a link to Wikipedia, a left-wing rag, to tell you the facts on the 2020 election. Well, the facts on the 2020 election are you had major interference by these agencies. And the irony, of course, is that they were nominally controlled by Trump. And it was all a lie in the sense of being controlled by Trump because you had these deep state actors and frankly, you had Trump appointees who got scared. They got scared about all the noise about the Russians and about them trying to influence the elections online. And they said, we're not going to let that happen again. And so they were going to pretend that any criticism of Biden was about the Russians. And they were going to, and of course, Twitter was scared off by the was scared by the FBI too because when these companies are dealing with these deep state agencies they're dealing with their judge jury and executioner at the same time they were also getting pressure from Congress as well Senator uh, Warner from Virginia abused his office to try to get Twitter to censor Americans these guys should be part of any criminal and civil investigation And it's continuing. Biden's is embracing this. They, he, remember, he called in the heads of the big tech companies to the White House uh, last year, encouraging them to commit censorship. So there's going to be more coming out. Again, Judicial Watch is a victim. You are a victim. Because even if you're not directly censored or shadow banned or targeted, information that you want is otherwise kept from you illegally and who knows how maybe you are a victim based on these twitter files the fbi was investigating other agencies were investigating people's tweets they're reading your tweets I, you know, and, and the smart Alex say, well, of course, they're public. They can. No, they can't. They can't investigate you, even your public comments as a law enforcement agency without good cause. And good cause isn't complaining about the way elections are run or complaining about vaccines or saying I don't like mass. That shouldn't generate a government investigation of you, at least not in America. So one of the things that Judicial Watch did recently, I'll go to my pile of press releases that we got to catch up on, was we sued, the, of course, we were doing or have done Freedom of Information Act requests that are tracking the Twitter files. So all of those or many of them will come to fruition. and I'm sure we'll be pursuing litigation on them. But for instance, we sued the Department of Homeland Security for I told you about this portal. So we don't just like look at material and say, well, isn't that interesting? We say, well, 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 what else can we get? 
So we sued for that information on the portal, the secret portal that was used, and I'm sure for not only Twitter, but for Facebook and other companies to censor you. We filed this lawsuit in October. Uh, excuse me. We asked for this, do these documents back in October. Of course, we got the proverbial hand to the face. You know, simple request about the tickets. You know, they had this uh, this this uh, censorship operation being run at the uh, out of the uh, HHS. Excuse me, Department of Homeland Security, supposedly to monitor elections. Again, using the excuse of Russian interference, which it turned out, according to the Twitter files, Twitter files couldn't find any evidence of significant Russian interference or bots. It was it's a scam. They were highlighting all these threats that were out there that were immaterial. And, but it didn't stop them from doing what the government wanted, Twitter. Twitter started just taking people down based on requests from the government. They supposedly, you know, remember they told you they were just doing it because you were violated the rules and they were making the decisions. No, they were outsourcing the decisions to the government. Completely illegal. So, like I said, we, we're, we're following these Twitter files. We're trying to uh, um, uncover what we can on the other end through FOIA. I mean, for instance, we've already uncovered aspects of the censorship operations from the government from California and Iowa. Uh, we've highlighted previously in other litigation and, and uh, other litigation has uncovered that uh, they were coordinating on COVID propaganda. It was you couldn't tell the difference between the agency. You know, you would read some of these emails and you unless you were following it carefully, it was hard to distinguish who was writing the email. Was it the government or the big tech company? And it's still happening. Now, are you hearing any sense of urgency from Republicans on the Hill about this continued massive censorship by the government in league with big tech of Americans? I'm not. I've heard a few complaints, nothing substantial. And we got information that they, uh, Twitter censored uh, the Hunter Biden story just before the election after being conditioned by the FBI and that the censorship had no good faith-based reason. The deplatform of a, the platforming of Trump occurred even though Twitter found and knew he hadn't violated its rules. That just made up another rule for him to be deplatformed for. Thankfully, he's been let back on by Elon Musk. He hasn't opened his account or started using his account yet. There's a lot going on, folks. And if you love your country, you need to track it. Because your, your core First Amendment uh, rights are under attack in ways never seen before in modern American history. In terms of the broad damage to the First Amendment, I, I don't think there's anything like it in American history. Because of the reach of these social media platforms, so many people can be casually censored and suppressed as a result of this government intersection uh, in terms of its operations with big tech. I mean, which is, you know, because of the technology, the damage is, is so much more significant than it had ever been previously possible during the history of our great nation. I mean, 
I mean, what can be done? Well, we're going to sue. I mean, we already have sued. I bet you we're going to be suing more. I'm sure other people who have been victimized will sue. What can Congress do? Now, you're going to hear a lot of reasons why Congress can't do anything. It's too difficult. Well, first of all, one of the biggest obstacles to Congress doing anything is that the Democrats, and this is unfortunately partisan and true, now, Republicans sometimes want censorship, too. That's true. But in terms of this major issue, the Democrats think big tech ought to censor American citizens on the issues that we're talking about. So they may not want it to stop. But if uh, you, they do want it to stop on the Hill, they're going to you're going to hear, oh, it's too difficult to do. Well, what is easy to do is to just ban government from taking uh, communicating with big tech companies to take down the tweets or posts or whatever of American citizens. Just ban it. I mean, I don't think it was lawful the request to begin with, but let's let's make it clear. You can't even talk to them. Unless there's this, there's this rigorous, you know, because there's always an exception, but the exceptions prove the rule. So unless there's a rigorous legal basis for doing so, the idea that any government agency would go to a third party where you've got stuff posted and tell them to take it down, it's, anti, uh, it's anti-constitutional. I don't think unconstitutional works anymore. It's anti-constitutional because this is a hot because they know what the Constitution is. This isn't an argument about, oh, we're interpreting Article One, Clause Two differently than you do, and you know you think it's unconstitutional. We don't. No, these are folks who reject the First Amendment. They don't believe in the Constitution. That's why I say it's anti-constitutional. So I promised I wasn't going to go off long on this, but it's a big issue. Don't you think the whole country being suppressed by the government, an election being ruined by the government? Then it hasn't stopped. Well, speaking of elections, I got some big news on the elections as well. I got to get going, otherwise I won't be able to get through everything. So we had a big victory in New York or a big settlement in New York City. We sued New York earlier this, I guess it was last year, because they didn't clean up the rolls for at least six years, especially New York. I think over six years, they removed 22 people from the rolls. And we settled the case after New York confirmed to us they removed 440,000 ineligible names from the rolls. Isn't that great news? You know, it's not like a, obviously, it's a very different state ideologically than Judicial Watch. At least the government is run by uh, people with a very different outlook than we do. But I'm, I'm, you know, I got to hand it to the New York City officials who settled the case with us. Because what had happened was we warned them in, I think, the beginning of 2000, the end of 2000, what's this year? This year is 2023. At the end of 2021, we sent them warning letters in other places that your roles are out of whack. And what they tried to do was at the last minute, they removed all of these names. And of course, they didn't tell us that, but so we sued. And so after back and forth over this federal litigation, because the federal law requires states to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. And if you're not removing anyone who uh, really hasn't shown up to vote in years and years and years or has ignored, you know, requests, hey, are you still there? You're supposed to remove them after a certain amount of time. And as I said, that wasn't being done. 
So they settled the case with us. It's under the National Voter Registration Act. States are required and counties are required to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. And uh, they they went and they cleaned off 440,000 names. And so that's a, that's a major victory for New Yorkers and frankly, all Americans, because you when you have dirty voting rolls, you can have dirty elections because that's a group of names potentially that someone can use to uh, vote in someone else's name. Someone dies, they're still on the list, or someone's moved away, they're still on the list, and they're inactive. Uh, there's ways of figuring out, well, this person isn't around and I'll vote in their name. That's why the government wants the names to be clean, the list to be clean. So New York elections were a lot cleaner in November Thanks to Judicial Watch. And this is on top of victories in Kentucky, where we clean, I think ultimately it's going to be probably a half million names. Initially, it was a quarter million names. A consent decree under a similar lawsuit. California, they settled. LA County's removing up to 1.2 or 6 million names from the rolls. And we're going to get, I think, a final report later this year as to how, how, how well they did there. Uh, in North Carolina, it was the same thing like in New York. We sued. Uh, actually, we didn't have to settle. I mean, they just removed so many names. We said, well, we don't even have a... I mean, there's really no good faith basis to be in court anymore. They did what we asked them to do. I think it was a similar number of names, 360 or around 400,000 names. So millions of names collectively have been removed from the nation's roles thanks to Judicial Watch's legal efforts. Legal efforts, by the way, that the Justice Department could also undertake, but has largely refused to undertake because the Justice Department is run by leftists and they don't like the idea of cleaning up voting rolls. And you can draw your own conclusions why that's the case. We have ongoing lawsuits against Pennsylvania. Um, I think that's going to result in something good in the end. And Colorado, we're still in litigation uh, to clean up their roles out there. And so it's going to be another cycle of getting uh, more information from the government about who has and who hasn't really cleaned up the roles. And so we're prepared to go to court again. But it's good that when we're going to court, they're settling with us because you know, otherwise, it's years of litigation, potentially, and you don't get the result you might you get in the end. So this is, a, this is just great news. I just love it. So we were in court last, I think it was last month, back in December. In Illinois, we had a federal lawsuit over Illinois' uh, decisions or, or, or regulations and laws that allow the state officials to count ballots Mailed ballots that come in as, as late as two weeks after Election Day, including ballots that aren't postmarked. And so we highlight that's, that's likely in violation of federal law. We're representing Congressman Mike Bost and two other registered Illinois voters out there. And uh, the Democratic, I think, party tried to come in and intervene in the case, um, and they were denied intervention, uh, but they were able to make an argument at one of the hearings recently. Uh, so we're facing some big kahunas there, and uh, we're, we're prepared uh, to keep on fighting.
And the court heard arguments to uh, get the case thrown out, essentially. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, he asked questions of both sides. So I don't know how the court's going to rule. But that case continues. And that's a that's a core case because federal law, as we allege, defines Election Day as the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November in every even numbered year when it comes to congressional elections. And despite Congress's clear statement regarding a single national election day, Illinois has expanded election day by extending by 14 days the date for receipt and counting of vote by mail ballots. I mean, that's just unacceptable. It really is. And it undermines, besides being unlawful, it really undermines confidence that people ought to be able to have in the fair administration and um cleanliness of the election process. So this is going to be a potentially major decision by the court. Uh, and we've joined this fight because it's very controversial to count ballots that arrive after Election Day. As well, it should. So I'll keep you updated on that. But I'm just going to go through some of these other releases that we've been doing. I'm going to read the headlines and give you a kind of a quick a quick riff on it. Judicial Watch files appeal challenging FBI's withholding of communications with banks regarding January 6th disturbance. Now, this is a great one because we sued the FBI because they refused to tell us, give us any documents or even confirm or deny whether they had any documents from banks where they were collecting the banking data of everyone in the D.C. area. Everyone on January 6th. I mean, how can you do that constitutionally? And why is it a state secret if you do? Other than you don't want people to talk, know about it because it's obviously corrupt. We argue this appeal arises from what appears to be an unprecedented abuse of the financial privacy of thousands of Americans. Substantial and compelling evidence demonstrates that the FBI sought and received records from financial institutions of anyone who used a credit card were engaged in other transactions in the Washington, D.C. area on January 5th or 6th, 2021. This would include many thousands of persons living in the D.C. area, including possibly members of this court. I mean, we want the details on what looks to be an unprecedented abuse of the financial privacy of countless innocent Americans by big banks and the FBI. I mean, that's what January 6th is about, isn't it? It's not about an attack on our democracy. It's about an attack on our republic by those who use January 6th as a pretext to investigate their political opponents and try to jail them. From Donald Trump on down to you, dear citizen, if you happen to be in the D.C. area. Well, who knows? Maybe you issued, you typed the wrong tweet or made the wrong Facebook post. If the government's willing to do this, just take banking data on someone they don't have the right to, who knows what else they'll do? Oh, wait, we already know what they'll do. They'll try to get companies to censor you on top of it. This is all part of a piece. Speaking of January 6th, as if I can't get any more outraged, Air Force records reveal tens of thousands of taxpayer dollars spent to house Ashley Babbitt Shooter and his pet 
for several months in distinguished visitor suite at Joint Base Andrews. You may recall we sued for these records and because we got information that he was over there. Lieutenant Byrd, the Capitol Hill police officer who needlessly and for no good reason shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. He was put up at an Air Force base at the time. Now it's a joint base, I think. It was an Air Force base back then. For months. The documents show that Bird and a pet stayed in a distinguished visitor suite at the Presidential Inn, which is part of the Air Force Inns there at the complex, under a Capitol Police Presidential Inn reservation for the period January 8, July 8, 2021 through January 28, 2022. So that, that started six months after January 6. That's curious. And I think, you know, we called over there to say, what, what, what do you mean by distinguished visitor suite? And we were told that's typically reserved for officers of the rank at the rank of 07, which is a brigadier, brigadier general or higher. And it looks like the government was paying for it, at least the Capitol Hill police, and obviously the Defense Department was providing support by making this material, the, the, this housing available to Byrd and his pet. I don't blame him for bringing his pet. Uh, but, you know, this is just another example and this extraordinary revelation of because you have the Defense Department involved in providing protection in some way for a police officer accused of an improper shooting. Well, he was never accused of an improper shooting because he was, as we've shown previously in other documents, protected by the Justice Department and the Pelosi gang that was running the Congress. So look up that. Six months at Air Andrews Air Force Base, or Joint Base, which is now Joint Base Andrews. And I see Ashley Babbitt's mother was arrested on Capitol Hill for jaywalking. Speaking of the Air Force, the uh, Air Force, just like the other branches of the military, have been in the thrall of this critical race theory, this anti-American Marxism that uses race and there's like critical feminist theory and critical queer theory and just critical theory generally, which is a Marxist approach to deconstruction, uh, deconstructing the establishment of Western civilization, the pillars of Western civilization, and especially the constitutional system and our republic here in America. So if you want our military to be trained in how to think of America as a country and uh, nation and republic that needs to be overthrown uh, to be replaced with a Marxist approach and uh, frankly dictatorship because that's the way the Marxists are, then you'd be supportive of this. I, for one, don't support it. And I think it's a menace that it's being taught and propagandized uh, in our military. And we've been in front and center in trying to expose what's been going on. We sued West Point. We sued Naval Academy to find out the information being used to train our leader, uh, rising leadership, the information as it relates to this critical race theory. 
attack on America, and we just sued the Air Force Academy. It's our second lawsuit against the Air Force Academy. Again, a simple lawsuit. We wanted a FOIA, we wanted a, uh, any and all documents, essentially any and all PowerPoint presentation, so it's really easy. Used for training and or classroom instruction discussing critical race theory and or white supremacy. And we wanted emails about the issue from senior Air Force uh, Academy leadership. What's so hard about this? And we asked about this last year and they still haven't given us anything. I mean, our, we are in crisis right now. Our military is under attack from within. This critical race theory is being used to propagandizing our rising military leadership. I mean, do we need to have deprogramming? I would think so. So I'll let you know when we get documents from the Air Force Academy about their abuse of the cadets there. Similarly, for we'll keep you updated on West Point. We've gotten some material from West Point I previously talked, previously talked about. Uh, and uh, obviously, when we hear back from the Navy Academy, Naval Academy, we'll let you know as well. So Joe Biden, I see, is going down to the border. I don't know what he's going to be doing other than to oversee the results of the invasion. He's aided and abetted in a way that, to me, ought to make the impeachment for that a priority. And Judicial Watch has exposed the, uh, the criminal enterprise, aided and abetted, as I noted, by our government in dramatic ways, including new records that show that just one Biden plane Biden administration plane, dropped off kids, illegal alien children, in three different cities. Basically, these were secretive overnight flights we had to sue to get information about. The Administration of Children for Children and Families, the division of HHS, produced, it was only 16 pages of records in response, again, to a lawsuit. I talked about this lawsuit not that long ago. I mean, if the only way, I shouldn't say the only way, the only way we can be assured of getting records, especially if we're not hearing from them, is to sue. So we sued to get the records, which is really outrageous, right? I mean, remember, every time we sue under FOIA, it means the agency involved is violating the law. It's not, a, it's not even an allegation. It's a fact because they've got like deadlines to meet. If you don't meet the deadline, you're in violation of the law. And usually we don't even, you know, we give them time after the deadline. So sometimes we just can't. We've got thousands of FOIA requests. So we don't always sue exactly when they're due. You know, sometimes we wait. Sometimes we try to negotiate to try to get the records. But usually it's uncovered. You know, just the fact that we have thousands that are pending and been unanswered. That's a scandal. That's just corruption there. It's evidence of government misconduct and unlawful behavior. One flight uh, traveling from San Diego stopped at Oklahoma City, Chattanooga, and Newark airports. They were operating a Boeing 737 with 147, 48 seats. And they had buses waiting at each of the places. So that's your government at work, aiding and abetting and essentially affecting child trafficking. So when you have millions of immigrants, illegal aliens, 
being trafficked because they're all trafficked. So it's the largest human trafficking operation in the history of the world. Some of them are adults. When you're talking millions, obviously a good portion of them are going to be children. And I think it's at least 250,000 over the last year or two. I don't know if it's for one year or two years, but it's in, in the tens and hundreds of thousands, uh, no matter what, being trafficked with no effective not only is it not being stopped by the Biden administration, but essentially the kids are being handled, treated like packages now and they're being dropped off by the Biden administration in the different cities. And I don't know about you, but I want that abuse of children to stop, whether they be you know, we obviously want our citizens protected, but the idea that our government would be involved in this international trafficking operation of children in such a way, you know, again, people ought to go to jail for this. You know, I kind of say that half jokingly, knowing that they'll never go to jail for it. But in the least, someone needs to be fired or impeached in the least. And it, and, and it ought to be stopped. It's a crisis. These kids are in crisis. So I encourage you to go, you know, you can find all of this stuff on Judicial Watch's website. I don't have time to go through them all in great detail, but it's astonishing material. Speaking of astonishing, I, I this is something that's going to knock your socks off. Judicial Watch, FDA records show significant number of mRNA test bat rats born with skeletal... <laughs> Excuse me, skeletal deformations. Yes, you heard that right. Skeletal deformations. There was a statistically significant number of rats born with skeletal deformations after their mothers were injected with the vaccine. The documents also reveal Moderna, which is one of the big companies doing the, um, you know, with, with uh, behind the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine elected not to conduct a number of uh, standard pharmacological studies on the laboratory's test animals. So a lot of studies that you may not know should have been done, but when you see what they are, you might say, why weren't they done? Weren't done. And, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen that. They tell you, oh, we don't need to do that for vaccines. And you can judge whether that's true or whether that's appropriate or not. Because they, they could be technically right, but practically wrong because it's dangerous not to do it. So there were uh, variations in skeletal examinations that included um, statistically significant increases in the number of rats with one or more wavy ribs and one or more rib nodules. And um, and I can go into detail there, but, you know, it's not the sort of thing uh, you would be happy to see. It seemed to me if you were a competent researcher or a company were uh, fairly looking at this. Now, they concluded, though, don't worry, wavy ribs or rib nodules in the litters of rats with this vaccine. A statistically increased number of them, a statistically significant increased number of them. They said that's not an adverse event. Now, some disagree with that. We've cited a study 
Whether or not a substance-induced increase in the incidence of fetal skeleton variation should be taken into account for human risk assessment is a long-standing controversial issue. It has been argued that chemical-produced increases in variations are not to be considered for risk assessment because they are unlikely to adversely affect survival or health. The counter-argument is that even not being overly, overtly adverse and conveying no apparent selective disadvantage, a treatment-induced increase in the occurrence of variations means that the chemical agent has the potential to perturb skeleton, skeleton development. According to this view, under a different condition of exposure or in another species, this perturbation of normal bone formation may give rise to a different and more severe outcome. So there you have the two arguments. A, it's no big deal, or B, it's a really big deal. My concern is it's a really big deal because we should have gotten these documents without having to sue in federal court for them and wait years. If it was no big deal, they would have turned them over to us. That's what I would conclude from this material. Why are we waiting after the fact? Why are we, why are we getting after the fact documents confirming or raising questions about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. That's a scandal for the ages. They did no absorption studies, no metabolism studies, no excretion studies, no pharmacokinetic studies, and no other, uh, other pharmacokinetic studies were done with the vaccines because, quote, they didn't need to. Pharmacokinetic studies are um, performed to clarify the absorption, distribution, meta metabolism, and excretion of drug, drug candidates. Sounds important to me. So we've done so much work on this, and I encourage you to go to judicialwatch.org to get um, the full detail here, uh, because uh, these vaccines are... You know, the, the issues about this vaccines are not going away. The questions are increasing and, it, and it's frustrating. And although we're proud to do it, but it's still frustrating that it seems Judicial Watch is one of the few entities out there that are getting this core information about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. I mean, by the time Congress gets its act together, who knows how much more damage will be done? I, you know, am I allowed to raise questions about the vaccines and this young football player from the Bills who collapsed on the, on the field? I mean, I don't know if he was even vaccinated. I, I presume he was. But there's an added risk of myocarditis for certain age groups, including especially young men. And I would want to know, irrespective of what happened there, whether the uh, myocarditis damage makes one more susceptible to severe heart injury. Don't you want to know? Aren't we allowed to ask the question? You would think the NFL would want to know the answer. I mean, thank God this kid's recovering. It's a miracle. But we want answers about the safety of these darn drugs. I mean, especially for age groups for which the risk of COVID is not as great as, as for other age groups. So frankly, I got some more to talk about here, but you're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs>
Uh, we've got other things coming up, uh, new documents, uh, new work to be performed. Obviously, we'll be talking about who the speaker, well, I hope we'll be talking about who the speaker is next week, right? Uh, but there's so much going on at Judicial Watch. And, and you know, I wasn't here in person to uh, talk about uh, things at the end of the year about what we're going to do for the new year. So I'm going to give you, um, I guess we're just this past the season of Christmas. I'm going to wish you a Merry Christmas anyway. And I'm also going to wish you a Happy New Year. And those of you who have been supporting us, uh, whether you supported us last year, uh, whether you plan to support us this year, I just encourage you to continue your support. And if you haven't supported us, uh, I encourage you to make your first donation and join our cause, join our movement. I can't think of a more dramatic illustration of how important Judicial Watch's work is than this update that has gone through a dozen different cases, at least, right? Lawsuits, documents, just astonishing work that no one else in the country is doing to protect the republic, to educate Americans about what their government's up to. I mean, people look to Judicial Watch. Government leaders look to Judicial Watch. Congress looks to Judicial Watch to defend the rule of law, defend the Constitution, and provide leadership on how we govern ourselves. And if you want to join that cause and join that movement, I encourage you to by going to our website at judicialwatch.org, judicialwatchoneword.org. It's going to be a big year uh, where there are going to be many opportunities to advance the rule of law, but also many challenges and many dangers and attacks on the rule of law that will have to be confronted. And if there's anyone better able to uh, confront these issues than Judicial Watch, let me know who they are because I want to work with them. But other than that, we stand fast and uh, we will stand in the gap on your behalf and on behalf of the U.S. Constitution. I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.